my friends. How are we doing today? Thank you for being here. Today we continue a series studying the seven churches of Revelation. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the Apostle John records seven letters written by Jesus to seven first century churches. But these letters read differently than other New Testament letters. They're filled with striking images and apocalyptic warnings. And in each letter, Jesus tells each church what he thinks about their faith. Now, as we study the letters together, we're asking him to do the same for us. Word of warning. Sometimes the truth hurts. But the truth doesn't harm. And if we embrace it with grace, the truth heals. So let's invite God to speak truth to us today. Will you pray with me? Lord, we give you today. We come into your presence with all that we are, with all our sin, with all our sorrow, with all our success. We come into your presence knowing that you are a nosy God. Knowing that you bring all things to light, leaving no stone unturned. Knowing, at least in our best moments, that you're nosy for our own good. So even if my friends here aren't bold enough to pray it, I'll pray it for us. Be nosy today infinite God of the universe. We pray this in the name of our all-seeing Lord. Amen. John Ortberg says, there are three subjects that young adults most like to discuss in church. Sex, the end times, and will there be sex in the end times? (laughs) Well, we've got it all today, my friends. I told you last week, this weekend I will offer a brief New Testament theology of sex. Oh, you never know what you're going to get when a Christian teacher tackles the subject of sex. As a teenager, I attended a Sunday school class taught by a wonderful woman who had a passion for teens and a particular gift. I don't know how she did it, but she always found a way to conclude each lesson with a plea to abstain from sex before marriage. We could be talking about Noah and the ark. The animals herded two by two into the boat, and she'd find a way to squeeze in, don't have sex! The content of the lesson could be the pre-tribulational, pre-millennial rapture of the church, yet somehow before the closing prayer, don't have sex! It's got to be unnerving for you to listen to a pastor talk about sex, so let me set you at ease. First, it's highly unlikely that I will yell at you this morning. Not going to promise, just predict. Secondly, and this is a promise, I will not deliver a how-to lecture on the topic. You are welcome. (laughs) Lastly, and most importantly, I will not burden you with a legalistic message of shame and guilt, do's and don'ts, shoulds and shouldn'ts. I hope, however, to scratch the surface on God's intention for human sexuality. If you are joining us for the first time today at Capitol, sorry. No surprise to any of you, our contemporary culture embraces a different view of sex than the church. But I found, even within the church, that not many truly understand the Christian concept of sex. It's perceived to be strict, prudish, and outdated. It's shouted loudly from pulpits without good explanation. Today, I hope to do a little better. But here's the truth. All the church just gets it wrong. 
Augustine, a founding father of, of Christianity in the 4th and 5th centuries, he got it wrong. Writhing in guilt over his past failures and his present feelings of lust, Augustine concluded that sex was only moral if used for procreation. In fact, he regretted God created sex in the first place. It's no wonder the church is the last place our world looks for perspective on sex. Author Philip Yancey points out in the centuries following the resurrection of Christ, the church issued edicts forbidding sex even among married couples on certain days. Church authorities decreed a moratorium on sex each Thursday because Thursday was the day Jesus was arrested. Sex was forbidden on Friday since it was the day of his death, on Saturdays in honor of Mary, on Sundays in honor of the departed saints. Church decrees forbade sex on the 40-day period of fasting before Easter, Christmas, and Pentecost. Also on feast days and what are called the days of the apostles. Yancey notes the restrictions left about 44 days each year when married couples were allowed sexual relations. Regulations loosened considerably after the Protestant Reformation only to return in full force during the Victorian era. The word leg was discouraged in everyday conversation lest one be tempted. In fact, the legs of furniture were covered so as not to arouse lustful thoughts. Why wouldn't the world want to hear what the church has to say about sex? Gentlemen, please don't gawk at the screen. I realize we're all on different places on this spiritual journey. Not all of us call ourselves followers of Jesus. In fact, you may not even be convinced there's a God. We want you to know we respect your spiritual journey. You may not buy everything I say today, and that's okay. We're just glad you're here. But I'm going to teach from the Bible. And there's a reason I do that. A lot of us have staked our lives on the truth of this book. It's not that we have it all figured out or claim to be perfect. Absolutely not. But some of us have discovered for ourselves, God speaks through this book in a unique way. So I encourage you to open your mind and see if anything we talk about today rings true in your soul. Believe it or not, the Bible actually has a high view of sex. Sex is not a sin. It is a gift from God, and there's nothing wrong with it. But you can take a really good thing and ruin it by misusing it. So my challenge to you this morning is honor God with your body. To cover this topic, I'll take you to the romantic city of Thyatira. There was, in fact, nothing romantic about Thyatira. But archaeological excavations reveal it was a thriving manufacturing community. Trades in Thyatira included potters, bakers, weavers, dyers, and metal workers. Now, here's why that's important. More than the other cities in our study, Thyatira boasted many trade guilds. Trade guilds are like unions, but unlike modern-day unions, the trade guilds made up the center of Thyatira's social, commercial, and religious life. The worship of other gods was central to the trade guilds. At guild feasts, participants consumed meat, sacrificed to the patron god, identified with that trade. If you were a baker, you'd get together with other bakers to worship the patron god of baking. These celebrations regularly turned into drunken feasts where immoral acts were offered as a part of worship. Now, clearly, these behaviors would give a follower of Jesus pause. But it is difficult to overstate the societal and economic pressure placed on a person to participate in the guild. In the minds of the community, continued worship of the patron God secured continued prosperity for the shared trade. 
Business owners who didn't participate in the guilds were targets of anger and boycotts. Now, Thyatira hadn't reached the point of persecution found in Pergamum, but social and economic ostracism were the reality of the faithful followers of Jesus in Thyatira. Jesus writes to them, beginning in Revelation chapter 2, verse 18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. As we've seen in each week of our study, the words Jesus uses to describe himself have special meaning to the specific church addressed. The patron deity of the city uh, in Thyatira was the Greek god Apollo, who was the son of Zeus. So it's here and only here in the book of Revelation that we find that this title for Jesus, Son of God. Jesus reminds the beleaguered Christians in Thyatira who the real Son of God is. The flaming eyes of Jesus highlight his ability to pierce through the darkness to see the hearts of humanity. His feet burnished with bronze symbolized strength. And this image would have been especially vivid for a town known for its work with bronze alloys. Jesus continues, verse 19, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Four qualities characterize the church at Thyatira. They were a loving community. They had a robust faith. They served one another with generosity, and they modeled endurance, the ability to hold up or hold on under duress. Jesus says they are now doing more than they did at first. Literally, your last works are greater than, the, than your first. Unlike the church at Ephesus, the church at Thyatira didn't get stuck or stalled. They kept growing. By the way, can Jesus say that about you? Are you more trusting than you were two years ago? Are you more loving and gracious and forgiving than you were at first? Or have you got a little jaded? A little bitter. In the face of persecution, the church at Thyatira is doing all right when it comes to love and faith and service and perseverance. But as John Stott says, if Satan can't destroy a church with persecution, he'll try to corrupt it with evil. Verse 20, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. Jezebel, the infamous queen of Hebrew history, first appears in 1 Kings chapter 16. You can read her story there and through the rest of 1 Kings until she finds her unseemly demise in 2 Kings chapter 9. Jezebel is well known for importing her foreign gods and incorporating them into the regular worship practices of God's people. Now, the woman called Jezebel in Revelation 2 is a different woman than the Jezebel of 1st and 2nd Kings. Jezebel's probably not her real name, but it's symbolic, like the name Balaam in last week's study. Apparently, this Jezebel is from the ranks of the church. She's arisen as a self-styled prophet who claims to hear from God. But her message is not from God. Jesus scolds them for tolerating her. Now, that's a, that's a stronger verb than the one used last week in Pergamum. The church at Pergamum had false prophets. The church at Thyatira tolerated them. This word often means pardon or forgive. Here it means allow, possibly support. The church at Thyatira clearly embraced her false teaching with a greater passion than the people of Pergamum. Verse 20, by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. In essence, this first century Jezebel claims that God told her it's okay to tolerate and even participate in the idolatry and immorality of the guilt feasts. Maybe she twisted Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 8. There Paul said, look, idols aren't real, so don't worry about buying meat sold at the open market. But here, the situation is different. We're not talking about market meat like they had in Corinth. We're talking about participating in feasts in which individuals consumed the meat as an act of worship. Jezebel the prophetess says to the people, God said it's all good. 
She says, God's grace is big enough to cover you as you participate in the sexual rituals with temple prostitutes. She says, what you do with your body doesn't matter. So eat, drink, and be merry. But Jesus says, her teaching is misleading some of his servants. Because Jesus wants his disciples to honor God with their bodies. The prophetess of Thyatira claims she knows the way, but she's leading disciples toward destruction. So Jesus says, verse 21, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. That verb to give it shows up throughout the seven letters in the letter of the church, to the church at Ephesus. Jesus promises to give the right to eat from the tree of life. In the letter to the church at Pergamum, he promises to give hidden manna and a white stone. Before this letter's finished, he'll give an additional gifts to the faithful at Thyatira. But he's already given Jezebel a gift. He's given her a chance to repent. That, by the way, is one of God's great gifts. A lot of people think that God is this angry God who's just waiting for an opportunity for you to mess up so he can strike you down. But he's a patient God. Is he giving you the gift of time to repent right now? Maybe you're sinning. Maybe you're ignoring, ignoring God's will in one particular area of life. Thankfully, nothing has snapped loose yet. No one knows yet. Don't take this time for granted. This may be your time to repent. Don't expect it to continue indefinitely. Jezebel ignores her opportunity. The English Standard Version says she refuses it. So, verse 22, I will cast her on a bed of suffering. In previous letters, Jesus offers a warning. If you don't repent, I will. But he's already given her a chance to repent. So this is simply a pronouncement of judgment. He says, I will cast her on a bed of suffering. It's probably a metaphor for sickness or disease. Whether this is literal or metaphorical sickness, we can't say for sure. Either way, may it never come your way. Now, maybe there's still hope for Jezebel after this judgment. Many scholars suspect this refers to a present judgment as opposed to a final judgment. It's possible this is another act of God's grace. There's a passage in Hebrews 12, verse 5 that reads, Have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Verse 10, God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Is it too late for Jezebel? It's hard to say. We can say she's not the only one judged. Verse 22 of Revelation 2, so I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. This verse and the next refer to two groups of people, her fellow adulterers, her fellow adulterers and her children. Now, her adulterers are mentioned first. These are probably people who have participated with Jezebel in her idolatrous and immoral behavior. But they apparently haven't fully embraced her teaching and lifestyle. They may yet escape judgment if they turn from her practices. Her children face a different fate. Verse 23, I will strike her children dead. Now, that's a shocking sentence. But remember the genre of literature. These are images and metaphors. And, and these aren't her genetic offspring. They're her spiritual children who have wholeheartedly committed to her ways. And like the verse before it, his words are symbolic. But they're symbolic of the real action the Lord will take to eradicate evil from his community. The judgment of Jesus will serve as a warning and an encouragement to 
all the churches, look at the rest of verse 23, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. The one with the flaming eyes now reminds us he sees right through us, and you will be paid or punished according to what he sees. Sobering words. The point is, how you live matters to Jesus. How you live matters to Jesus. Some of us haven't received our comeuppance yet. May this message and these verses get our attention before it's too late. Jesus wants us to honor God with our bodies. Jezebel said, doesn't matter how you live. Jezebel said, doesn't matter how you use your body. It doesn't matter what you do sexually. Jesus disagrees. And here's why. Sex is powerful. In fact, sex is one of the most powerful forces known to humankind. You don't have to be Don Draper to know. Sex sells. Few things arouse more curiosity or receive more attention than sex. Few forces have the power, the sway, the influence over humanity as sex. Which is why we better know how to use it properly. We don't need to fear it. We need to respect it. It's like electricity. A healthy respect of electricity won't keep you from plugging in your iPhone tonight. But it will probably keep you from licking the socket. <laughs> I believe sex has more meaning than our culture gives it. I hope today we can recapture a little of its beauty and mystery and magic. Now, I use that word magic intentionally. I, I don't mean magic like wizards and spells and Harry Potter. <laughs> I'm talking about the mystical, mysterious energy God embedded within it. Did you know that according to the Bible, your body and the way you treat your body is intrinsically connected to your spirituality? About 40 years before this letter was written to Thyatira, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to a church in the city of Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Paul asks his reader and he asks us, do you not know that your body your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. He says your body is a temple. Now, when we read about a temple, we think of a church building. But consider what this would have meant to Paul's original reader. The temple is the place where God dwells. The temple is the one place on the planet where heaven and earth come together. It was sacred. It was holy. You didn't treat it like other buildings because it was set apart for another purpose. But Paul's saying God's temple's not a building made of wood or stone. He says, you are the temple. I'm the temple. Specifically, our bodies are the temple. Do you treat your body like it's a sacred temple? Friends, God's given us many things to enjoy. And here's some good news. God designed sex for procreation and pleasure. But could a blessing become a curse when not used appropriately? Throughout chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, Paul presents the right way to use the human body. Now, we can make practical application of his principles from multiple angles concerning our bodies. His words apply to drugs, diet, exercise, and on and on. But Paul particularly 
emphasizes sexuality. The phrase that I've used over the years to describe this passage is this. Good used wrong goes bad. Good used wrong goes bad. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul quotes a couple slogans that were popular in Corinth, and apparently they were being used in the church to justify sexual immorality. The Corinthians rationalized, verse 12, I have the right to do anything. I have the right to do anything. Paul doesn't deny this quote outright. It's probably true in many ways. But it appears Paul's friends in Corinth are allowing their freedom to cause harm. The slogan must be balanced by wisdom. In verse 12, again, I have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. You may have the right to do something, but that doesn't mean that it would be the best option for you and for those around you. For example, I love chocolate chip cookies. Look at that photo. Actual size. (laughs) Friends, sex is a gift from God. Chocolate chip cookies are a gift from God. Though not mentioned in Scripture, I am convinced fresh-baked chocolate chip cookies were available to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. (laughs) And hey, I have the right to eat as many cookies as I want. In fact, eating a cookie after church may be perfectly reasonable. But eating three dozen cookies may be a little excessive. Good use wrong goes bad. Paul's argument continues, verse 12. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. There's a great play on words that we miss in our English translations. In Greek, it's something like, all things are in my power, but I will not be overpowered by anything. A misuse of freedom can lead you right into bondage. Are you, in, are you controlled by your sexual urges? Are you enslaved to your passions? Do they tell you what to do? Some of you are doing things that make you feel guilty. Guilt is one of the most common forms of bondage. Are you enslaved by guilt? Here's another slogan used by the Corinthians, verse 13. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. But God will destroy them both. There are two rationalizations in this passage. First, the Corinthians believed that... What happened in their bodies didn't matter. God only cares about the spirit, right? And besides, food for the stomach, the stomach for food. That's what it's made for. Now think about this argument in the context of sex. That's what it's made for. It's natural. The equipment comes standard. What do you expect me to do with it? Paul counters this excuse, saying, verse 13, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Paul briefly mentions the Christian concept of resurrection, which he covers later in chapter 15. Our bodies are destined for resurrection. They belong to eternity. So we need to be careful how we use them Next, Paul applies his principles to a specific form of sexual immorality, prostitution. Okay, understand the context. Corinth was a port city, which meant prostitution was rampant. It it seems that this problem seeped into the life of the church. Now, you may not struggle with prostitute solicitation, but stay with him. Paul's going somewhere with his argument. He asks two rhetorical questions, verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Paul emphatically answers his own questions. Never. First, he reminds them that they're part of the body of Christ. It's one of Paul's favorite metaphors for followers of Jesus. Our English word members dilutes the image. I am a member at Red Butte Gardens. I used to be a member at Gold's Gym, though perhaps my massive physique led you to believe that I maintained my membership all these years. Our English word member doesn't quite capture the concept intended by Paul. When Paul says members, he means limbs. He wants us to picture ourselves as appendages 
of the body of Christ. Then he asks, shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? Now, I want you to look carefully at that word take. In Greek, it's the word iro. Iro means take away or remove, but it's actually more violent than that. Paul is trying to shock his reader as he writes, will you dare tear the limbs off Christ Jesus and attach them to a prostitute? They didn't teach you that translation in Sunday school, did they? Now, Paul's not being blasphemous. He just wants them to see how appalling their behavior has been to the Lord. He makes another startling statement, verse 16. Do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in body? Whoa, what's this one business? What does he mean? He explains it in the second half of the verse. For it is said, verse 16, the two will become one flesh. Now here Paul is quoting Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where God describes marriage. The language of marriage is poetic and ethereal. The scriptures describe marriage as a spiritual union. It is a soul fusion, a synthesis of mind, emotion, spirit, and body, where two become one while never losing their individual identities. Marriage is a union that far transcends the legal document on file with the Salt Lake County clerk. But don't miss the significance of what Paul is doing. Paul links the casual, seemingly inconsequential physical connection of two people to the commitment of marriage. In so doing, he's telling us something very important about the power of sex. Perhaps better said, the sacredness of sex. If Paul's right, I got to ask, is there any such thing as casual sex? And you may protest. Troy, isn't sex just a physical thing? I mean... Who wants to buy a car without taking it for a test drive first? Think this through. What's the most casual sexual encounter possible? One with no strings attached. Well, it's relations with a prostitute. Think about it. There's no relationship. There are no expectations of later association. It's just physical. What's the big deal? Well... For what it's worth, Paul says, when you have sex with the guy you've been dating for a few months, you have become one flesh with him. When you sleep with a girl, even in a one-night stand, that means nothing. You have united yourself to her in a way that Paul equates with the mystical union of marriage. What we do sexually, we do with our whole beings. Now, if that's true, that means a lot of us have given a lot of ourselves away to a lot of different people. But if that's true, there's nothing casual about sex. Sex is designed as an expression of intimacy. Marriage provides a safe context for you to find its true intimacy and fullest expression where you can love and be loved for for someone to know and be known, fully known. My single friends often fear obedience to the scripture will cause them to miss out on something great. What if it's the other way around? Dallas Willard observed, we keep hammering the sex button in the hope that a little intimacy might finally dribble out in vain. Friends, you, you don't have to listen to me. Hey, many who claim allegiance to Christ blatantly ignore this teaching of Scripture. But here's what I'll tell you. You can't ignore what God says and then expect your relationships to be free of baggage and turmoil. I like the analogy used by N.T. Wright. Have you ever noticed there's never a screwdriver around when you need one? Any of you have this problem? 
Have you ever used a kitchen knife when a screwdriver wasn't around? <sighs> okay, it's true. You can use a kitchen knife. It's your knife. I suppose you could even use a spoon. You're right. But it's not nearly as efficient. And if you do, you can't expect your cutlery to be in working order when you need it for its intended purpose. Now, verse 19 again. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So, what's it going to be? Back to Revelation 2. While the church at Thyatira at large may have tolerated the teaching of Jezebel, not all of them have embraced it. Verse 24 of Revelation 2. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. Now I want to pause there for a minute. There are two primary ways this passage has been interpreted historically. For some scholars read this as divine sarcasm. Perhaps the self-proclaimed prophetess referred to her teaching as the deep things of God. Now, the Apostle Paul used that language in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. She may have borrowed Paul's language to validate her idolatry and immorality. If that's the case, then Jesus is using irony to identify the true source of her secrets, calling them the deep things of Satan. Uh, another possibility is she might be literally encouraging her followers to experience the deep things of Satan, as in, hey, if you're going to really appreciate God's grace, you got to sin big, baby. By doing so, you'll show the world that God's grace is greater than sin. Undoubtedly, Jesus disagrees. Verse 24, now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. Verse 26. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end. Note, Jesus clarifies what he means by the one who is victorious. That's a person who does his will to the end. He gives that person two things. The first is authority. Verse 26 again. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. It's another cryptic passage, but it's a paraphrase from Psalm chapter 2. Uh, from Psalm 2. By the first century B.C., many... Jews believe Psalm 2 applied to the Messiah. Throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, we find references to God's people sharing in the Messiah's rule and reign. What that looks like remains a mystery that's been debated through the ages, so we're left to wonder. Jesus offers a second gift, not just authority. Verse 28, I will also give that one the morning star. Revelation 22 offers the identity of that star. Look ahead, verse 16. I, Jesus have sent my angel to give you this testimony to the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. As we've seen throughout our letters, it's another reference to the intimacy Jesus promises his faithful ones. He concludes, verse 29, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus says to the church at Thyatira, he says to whomever will listen, honor God. With your body. Honor God with your body. Now, I want to pray. But before I pray, I want to talk to a couple people. First, to the unconvinced, or more accurately, the stubborn. There, there are some of us out here who have very legitimate questions that need to be answered, and we need to think about this. Well, I'm not talking to you at the moment. I'm talking to the people who know what I'm saying is true, and you don't want to listen. 
whatever prayer is going to come out of my lips in just a few moments is not one you're ready to pray. Maybe if you're honest, you're more ready to pray the prayer of Augustine that he recorded, which he prayed when he was a young man. Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. Well, I get it. Here's what I'd say to you. Just know what you're praying. And just know there may be consequences. Am I trying to threaten you? No. Am I telling you you will burn in a fiery, fiery hell? No. But there may be consequences. And I challenge you to see this as a matter of trust. Somehow you've got it in your mind that you know better than God. Think that through for a second. Will you trust him for his way of living? And before I pray, I also want to talk to the regretful. The remorseful. Hey, the fact of the matter is many of us have already blown it. Maybe for you, listening to this message gave you a sick feeling in your stomach. Will he just please close in prayer so I can run to my car? (sighs) I get it. Philip Yancey observed, The pain that lingers after sexual failure is oddly an indirect proof of sexuality's original design. Maybe you've been a victim. Maybe something was done to you. Maybe you did something to someone else. I know there's more than a few of there's more than a few people in this room who are struggling with guilt and shame and pain. First, for the person who's feeling guilty, here's something you may not be counting on. The same God who created sex is the same God who offers unconditional forgiveness. That's right, unconditional. We have trouble understanding that kind of forgiveness because so few humans model it. But God doesn't forgive like we forgive. The Bible says as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he's taken your sin and thrown it. Will you receive that forgiveness from him today? Maybe there's something that you did a long, long time ago and you cannot forgive yourself. Will you receive God's forgiveness for you today? Maybe you have been wounded. And you feel like a hole has been torn in your soul. I imagine more than a few of you feel like damaged goods today. Will God make you a virgin again? No. But I believe he can heal. I believe he can restore. I can believe he can help put the pieces back together to make you a whole person. So maybe we need to pray for healing too. Let's do that now. Father, first we thank you for truth. There's been a lot of truth in these seven letters so far. And we thank you for it. Perhaps not everyone in this room was ready to hear this truth today. But I bet you more than a few were. And I pray you would do what only you can do by your spirit. 
apply the truth of these texts to people's hearts and people's lives and people's decisions. May we trust you with truth. I pray for my friends who have blown it. May they receive your forgiveness. May they embrace it and forgive themselves too. I pray for my friends who long for healing. Would they experience it deep in their soul? May they not be haunted by the past anymore. But may they find wholeness in you. Lord, challenge us as we leave here today and remind us of the things we talked about in the days to come. We pray in the name of King Jesus. Amen. Okay. How about we talk about homework? Boy, that got really awkward, didn't it? Um, let me be more specific. Um, good night. I, um, how about a book? Earlier I quoted Philip Yancey, who's the author of a tiny little book. It's called Designer Sex. And when I say tiny, I mean tiny. I got one right here. Um, He's a little guy. And it is an an incredible book. And Yancey paints a picture of the power of sex with more beauty and detail than I ever could. Uh, you got to get this book. In particular, if you're single. Um, If you have a loved one in your life who is at a point when they're asking important questions about sex. I'm telling you, this is an incredible book. Um, I will warn you, we have done everything in our power that we can think of to date to get more copies of this. I'm afraid it's going out of print. We have a handful available at the back. Uh, They'll almost assuredly be sold out at the end of this service. But I... uh, uh, if you can't get one, we're going to keep trying to get them because and, and, I, I, I want to keep them stocked in our little bookstore at the back. If we can't get them, let me tell you where you can get them. This is actually three chapters from another book by Philip Yancey called Rumors of Another World. Rumors of Another World. Worth the purchase price of the entire book for those three chapters alone. Pick it up. Okay. For my single friends, I have an assignment. I'm going to dare you on this one. Live celibate for six months. For some of you, you're looking at me, duh. <laughs> I, but I'm probably not talking to you. You know who I'm talking to. You know who you are. Will it be a sacrifice? <laughs> yeah. Let's see what you learn about yourself, about relationships, about what God's calling you to be, about the power of sex. Um, but I also know uh, there's some of you who are going to leave here with the best intentions. And you really are. Whether you've messed up in the past or not, you're walking out of here with with a, a commitment, even in your soul. No, I'm really going to do this. In Christ Jesus, I'm going to do this. And and you walk out of here with with all the best ideas in the world. Now, this this could be a single person struggling with temptation. This could be a married person struggling with temptation. You've got all the best intentions. But then you meet her. Her name is Penelope. She's breathtaking. And she is throwing herself at you. Or he's fantastic and he drives a Lamborghini. And all of a sudden, all your commitments go flying out the window. Right? Okay. 
Let me give you my advice. A new assignment for you in that space of life. Now, I shared this with our church community several years ago. Um, it, it's a tip that I found essential over the years. Before I was Capital's lead pastor, I was a young adult pastor here within our church community. Found this to be the most effective tip when it comes to sexual temptation. Uh, frankly, I owe what wisdom I have to the fire prevention films I saw in elementary school. Now, you may recall their advice. If you ever catch fire, what do the professionals instruct you to do? What is it? Stop, drop, and roll. Very good. Friends, hear me clearly. If in a moment of passion, you catch a flame with the fires of lust, do the exact opposite. <laughs> don't stop, don't drop, and don't you dare roll. I want you to run from the room screaming like a banshee. The Apostle Paul says it with a little more eloquence, and here's your assignment, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. Don't try to be tough. Don't stick around to see how spiritual you are. Run like a frightened little schoolgirl. School I also want to give you this verse, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, both of these Images are able, you're able to download them from our online bulletin, from our social media accounts later this week. Also, this graphic, honor God with your body. Please stand. <clears throat> if you came with a need, we'll have some people waiting here at the front. Come on up, ask them to pray for you because they love to do so. Ah. <sighs> Boy, I look at the clock and man, was this a long message, but at least it was about sex. <laughs> My prayer for all of you is this. May you grasp the power of sex. May you embrace God's unconditional forgiveness and may you trust him enough to honor him with your body. Thanks for being here. Grace and peace.